Hey friends, welcome to Reorthodox Theology. My name is Justin, and thanks so much for your patience as I was MIA for about a month. I had to focus on school and family and work for a little bit after I reached 20 episodes. So thank you so much. I'm glad to be back, and I am excited to share today's episode. My guest is Dr. John Goodrich. He is professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute. And we talk about a chapter he wrote in a book all about demons and specifically Paul's use and understanding of demons in relation to the power of Jesus. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. John Goodrich, thank you so much for joining the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, I'm really excited about this, the topic that we're going to have today, just because I think people, at least in the West, don't really talk about or address demons as much as other areas, um, and spirits as much as other areas, you know, in the world. So I'm really excited. But before we dive into the chapter you wrote about, I'd I'd love for listeners who may not know you or or your work, if they, if uh, they could hear just a little bit about you, of who you are. And where are you, what are you doing right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm I'm a professor at Moody Bible Institute. Um, I've been at Moody for the past 13 years, so I started in 2010. Um, I'm also an adjunct faculty member at Compass Bible Institute in Southern California. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm a product of uh, Moody as an undergrad and Talbot for seminary. Did an MDiv and a THM at Talbot before going off to the University of Durham to do my PhD work um, in New Testament. So I finished that up in 2010 and started teaching shortly after that. So yeah, I'm, I'm still a faculty member uh, and I love, love teaching students and, and writing and doing all the things I get to do as a faculty member. Yeah, yeah. So you wrote this really good chapter and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it for the listeners. Paul's, is, I'm, make sure I'm pronouncing this right, superhumanizing? Yeah. Okay. Paul's superhumanizing exegesis, rewriting the defeat of God's enemies in 1 Corinthians, Romans, and Ephesians. So I, I'm really curious, why was this specific topic, why, why is demons a topic that you wanted to write about and study? I wouldn't say demons was high on my priority list to write about as much as uh, they, they just became um, just an important aspect of a particular project that I've been working on for a while, which is sort of in the, in the subtitle of that, uh, and that essay I wrote, um, Paul's rewriting of God's enemies. Hmm. And so I'm, I would say my primary interest, uh, over the last few years has really been more so Paul's use of the Old Testament, intertext, intertextuality, uh, that kind of a thing. But I also have an interest, uh, in sort of the narrative shape, I think you could say of Paul's theology um i think i think that uh you know debates and discussions of justification and those kinds of things are fine but uh i've really been drawn to uh i guess what we what we could call sort of the christus victor um sort of shape of uh of paul's theology of atonement and and such so uh again not that not that it's neither or for me but uh there's something about uh, sort of the implicit storyline um, of Scripture in Paul's letters and uh, uh, the particular arc of uh, the, uh, the Christ event uh, coming to, uh, to rectify 
uh, sort of the corruption of the cosmos introduced by powers of sin and death, which are sort of these, uh, you know, personified powers um, or, or ontological powers. And of course, uh, Christ's defeat of the demonic as well, I think, plays into this yeah. uh, particular interest of mine. And so I was sort of, sort of found myself into uh, in, in, in discussions about uh, the, the demonic, mainly as a result of my interest in this this issue of Paul's use of the Old Testament in relation to the defeat of these enemies of God. Hmm. How would you, you use the word, how would you define um, Christus Victor for listeners who may not know what that means? Yeah, I mean, Christus Victor, I, I'm, I'm sure there are much more sophisticated ways we could talk about it than I'm prepared to do. But mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 when, I, when I use that language, I simply am trying to suggest that uh, the consequence of the Christ event of Jesus's Life, death, resurrection wasn't some wasn't simply uh, sort of the erasing of my sins and forgiveness. Um, in fact, uh, very famously, you know, the 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 notion of forgiveness doesn't actually happen doesn't actually doesn't doesn't come up very explicitly uh, very often in Paul's letters. And so, um, justification, of course, is a is a particular model or metaphor, uh, however you want to call it, um, that uh, predominates in discussions of Paul's theology, but. Uh, one of the other aspects of sort of the, again, the consequence of the the Christ event is that is that the as that sin and death and other personified or personal powers like demons are defeated as a result to Jesus's uh, uh, death and resurrection and exaltation. And so I think this is pretty clear in a number of passages, and certainly has been kind of all the rage in uh, the last uh, handful of years in Pauline theology. And so I find myself uh, just really drawn to this model. Um, which again doesn't exclude other models or metaphors or ways of talking about what Jesus has accomplished for humanity or for the cosmos at large, but it's just a particular dimension or emphasis that uh, there are there are personal or personified powers which have been defeated. Uh, I oftentimes tell my students, um, and just to sort of oversimplify this, I suppose, but when we talk about justification, justification, and at least at least the way I read Romans and some other texts in Paul. Uh, it's, it's this forensic metaphor, uh, that sort of portrays humanity as the bad guys, as the, uh, as the, uh, the, the evildoers who are deserving of, um, uh, divine wrath and condemnation and the like. Um, whereas the, uh, what some call the liberation model of, of Paul's theology, which stresses and uh, that humanity is enslaved to evil powers. Well, the Christ event liberates them from those powers, and so in that sort of model, it's perhaps easier to see humanity less as the bad guys and more so as the sort of the damsels in distress, the people who have been taken uh, and held captive by evil powers which need to be defeated so that humanity can be released. Um, Again, these aren't mutually exclusive models to my mind, although some Pauline theologians and other scholars like to make them make it an an either or, but... um, but to me, that's sort of a, a, a basic way of understanding this is um, rather than seeing the primary plight of, of, of humanity or even the cosmos as, as sins, plural, um, uh, and, and, and death as a status, uh, it, the, the primary plight is, is imprisonment or captivity. And so the solution to the problem is, is release or liberation. And so this is a different way of, I think, conceptualizing what Jesus has done for humanity. And I, I'm really drawn to that model. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's helpful. So could you, what are demons? What are demons to uh, Paul? And I'd be like, even 
as you're studying, I'm sure you're developing your own ideas. I'd be curious also hear what you think of, of demons as well. Yeah, that's a good question. And then I wish Paul had told us more about what it is that he seems to just take for granted. And, and really much of the New Testament just takes for granted the existence of the demonic um, uh, Satan and, uh, and, and uh, his, uh, his associates, you could say. Uh, I mean, the, de- the demonic, I think, uh, is, for me anyway, a, primarily a way of just referring to uh, evil spirit powers that are unseen to the human eye, right? And so to the naked eye, um, there's, uh, I mean, really the Bible takes for granted, I think, uh, the existence of an unseen realm, right? That there exists uh, not just this earthly terrestrial world, but a heavenly world, um, heavenly realm. And uh, there are various agents and actors at play in that realm, not just God the Father and uh you know, various uh, creatures that we see, for instance, in the book of Revelation that are surrounding and, uh, and worshiping God the Father, but they're actually uh, angelic beings as well, um, many of which are uh, recognize God as God and worship him. Um, and then there also seem to be in existence um, some sort of rebellious spirits, um, re- rebellious agents within that heavenly realm as well. And so, uh, demons are, to my mind anyway, at least the way I use this language, and I know that some people would balk at, at this, is we're just referring to the rebellious agents within that uh, that that spirit realm. Now, I think there's there's the New Testament also takes for granted that there's there are rebellious spirits here in the terrestrial uh, realm as well. Um, and so, in the Gospels, right, there's just a, a number of encounters with uh, demon possessed individuals who need to be, uh, have those demons exercised, and uh, Jesus comes on the scene and does exactly that. So, again, they're invisible. Um, those are invisible personal or uh, uh, personal powers uh, that seem to be super superhuman in the sense that they're more powerful than the, than the normal and average human being. And so, uh, that's how I use the word demon. We can probably nuance that a bit more or more uh, there are certainly scholars that, that, that do and perhaps use the word demons to refer to primarily those, those agents that are just on the, it's sort of the terrestrial world. Um, but, uh, but I use them, I use it to refer to just the rebellious spirits that exist both above and below. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's helpful. And you, the word superhumanize or the phrase superhumanizing exegesis, mm-hmm. you elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I could try. Um, <laughs> It's, 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 I, I suppose it's, it's an easier concept than it sounds. Um, uh, all I'm trying to suggest by using this phrase is that, uh, that, uh, that what Paul, that Paul is, what Paul is doing, um, with the Old Testament and he's, he's taking Old Testament verses, uh, Old Testament passages, which primarily target or have in mind, um, human, uh, opponents or and uh usually they're either nations or kings um of of that sort but human enemies of god uh and there are various passages which talk about the defeat of these human agents um whereas paul uh utilizes uh these old testament texts to sort of prefigure the uh initial and and, and eventual defeat of uh not human enemies but primarily uh, superhuman enemies. And so 
uh, my, the, the primary thrust of the phrase super high, superhumanizing exegesis is simply to show that there's a kind of uh, creative adaptation that that Paul is uh, uh, is is that is undergoing Paul's use of these Old Testament texts, and so um, Paul very famously and various New Testament authors and Jewish authors do this kind of thing from once in a while. Is they use an Old Testament text that intentionally had one particular purpose, and they use it for their own purposes or slightly you know, redirecting it uh, for their own purposes. And so all I'm doing here is trying to show that. Paul has a tendency uh, to utilize Old Testament texts that target the defeat of human kings and nations that are rebellion to God, um, and uh, to actually uh, forecast the eventual defeat of, of superhuman or uh, evil spiritual beings, mm. um, like the rules and authorities and the powers that Paul talks about numerous times in his letters, like in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians and some other places. Mm. Okay. So... It's interesting because when I when you and I first started emailing, I I wanted to have this episode in the future for a little mini series on demons. But as as I was really reading the the chapter you wrote, it's it's just like dripping with Christology, and that's my current series. Uh, you know, I'm focusing this whole year on Christology, and I found. It, it was really fascinating how your emphasis that, you know, it's Christ who is the, the victor over over mm-hmm. these demons. So I was wondering, I didn't prepare you for this com- uh, this question, but I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit of, of how did you come to that conclusion that Jesus is the victor over these spirits or, you know, yeah. how you put it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's right there in the text pretty um, typically. I mean, at least in my particular, the chapter that I wrote, the essay that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, so the primary passages I deal with are First uh, Corinthians fifteen, um, and uh, particularly the the you know the, the early and mid section of that particular uh, chapter, which has so much to say about uh, you know the resurrection of the human body, and but there's an uh, especially important uh, section and sort of the major the second major unit and maybe a third major unit depending on how you count it, but of the passage in chapter uh, chapter fifteen verses twenty to twenty eight. Where Paul seems to provide a bit of a timeline um, for the um, for the the resurrection, um, and uh, at least the resurrection of human bodies, and uh, and part of part of that timeline includes uh, a discussion of the defeat of God's enemies. And sometimes Paul gets really specific in naming some of these enemies as the rules, the authorities, the powers, those kinds of things. And then at the last enemy to be to be defeated, Paul says, is death. Um, and so what Paul says there is Christ must reign until, right, he's, he's uh, placed all these enemies under, underfoot, under his feet. And in, in, in saying as much, he pretty clearly alludes to two, two very famous psalms, um, Psalm 110, one, uh, verse 1, and then also Psalm 8, 6. Um, I think there are also allusions there to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, which I think are significant as well. But uh, but the those two psalms are are the the Old Testament passages that get the most attention when it comes to Paul's intertextuality in that particular part of First Corinthians. And so, I just think it's very clear in the text there when when uh, when Paul's talking about the defeat of these enemies, it's Christ who's going to defeat them. It's through His reign now um, at the right hand of the Father. He's currently subduing His enemies. I guess you could say it even was initially accomplished on the cross, but certainly in His exalted position. Um, uh, he's he's also ruling and uh, and and 
defeating, continuing to defeat these enemies. I think the way it works out, I mean, he doesn't talk specifically about how this works, but I think we can deduce from other parts of scripture that as the gospel is preached and as people uh, become Christians, I guess you could say, as people uh, uh, become followers of Jesus um, and uh, they are, in a sense, released from these powers of evil and uh, particularly uh, at the at the second coming of Christ, um, when death is going to be defeated, um, that's when really the climax the climax of the whole uh, defeat will happen, as well. So I just think Christ is the center of that whole passage, and so I think it's very clear. Um, there's a particular Christology that um, that Paul is projecting that focuses on the defeat of enemies, and his reign isn't just a neutral, static reign, but one that includes subduing evil powers in the cosmos and bringing sort of the cosmos under control. I think the same is going on in um, in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, a lot of good work has been done on Ephesians in this sort of way in the last uh, decade or so. Tim Gombas, um, who, from whom I, I've learned a lot about Ephesians just by reading his work and um, and just appreciating uh, some of the work he's done on sort of the, again, the narrative of Ephesians as the drama of of Ephesians is sometimes the way he refers to it, but the triumph of God in Ephesians. Uh, he, I mean, he's really helped helped for me to see that there's this, uh, you know, really pr- prominent emphasis on Christ's exaltation um, after his resurrection, the exaltation to the right hand of the Father, where he, just like in First Corinthians, um, is subduing his enemies by placing them underfoot. So uh, that's already happened. I think that's emphasized multiple times over in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, but also um, in Paul's uh, allusion to uh, not just Psalm 110 and Psalm 86, like he does in Ephesians 1, but also in um, another Psalm, Psalm 80, uh, 68, excuse me, uh, hmm. that, he, uh, that he sort of adapts, he quotes, but adapts it in, in Ephesians 4. And then finally, there's a very famous... Uh, spiritual warfare text, the very end of uh, Ephesians in chapter 6, um, which which talks about the the armor of God, um, and certainly that's Christological as well, uh, because as, as Christians are said to have put on the armor of God, which I think really just simply means to put on Christ, um, which is a, you know, a language that we see just a couple chapters before then. As we, as we put on Christ and are, enjoy union with, with our Lord, um, we, in a sense, are putting on the various virtues that come along with uh, union with Christ, and that helps to equip us to withstand the attacks of the of, of the devil and the, and the like. So even that passage is highly christological. So yeah, so I just think it's 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 in a variety of places in the text, or at least implicit in the text. Um, yeah, so I just think that it's it, these are highly christological. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So considering demons and and this you know the spirits, you know this cosmic battle, I suppose. How would you suggest that modern readers, modern interpreters understand the demonic in in correlation or relationship to, you know, evil things that happen in the world or natural disasters? You know, what role, I guess, do yeah. does a demonic have in everyday like stuff that happens now? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm asking yeah. because as you say, uh Jesus tramples these things he has these are under his foot according to paul so how how can that be you you know does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah i think uh this is where the already not yet comes in sort of we have we live in a sort of an inaugurated eschatological state right now 
Paul says in First Corinthians ten that the uh, we are those on whom the end of the the the, the end of the ages has come, and so we're living um, in the eschaton, which is to say that the new creation has been inaugurated, and as 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 a result of that, uh, Christ already, or or I should say, in alignment with that, or in, continuous with that, there's Christ Christ rules right now at the right hand of the Father, uh, but it's an already not yet type of reign, and so um, he he currently reigns and he will continue to reign. Uh, you know, I belong to a particular theological theological tradition that believes that Christ will rule on earth as well at a future time. But even even now, what I can what kind of what I can affirm is that Christ defeated these powers in an already sense at uh, uh, through his first coming and uh, through his death, resurrection, exaltation, and then he will defeat them in a, in a definitive sense at a still forthcoming time um, at his at his return. So. Uh, it's a both and, and I, the, you know the the very famous uh, metaphor or analogy, I guess you could say that uh, uh, to describe this is just the difference between what we call D Day and V Day, right? And the Second World World War. And so, in a sense, when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, um, there was a sense in which that was the uh, the start of the defeat of uh, Nazi Germany, right? In in the Second World War, but it wasn't until uh, you know the Allies marched all the way to Berlin, and 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 and, and I'm not a World War II historian, but anyway, uh, you know all that uh, finally came to a close. That uh, an actual victory day was able to be proclaimed, and so, I mean, there's that metaphor, that analogy breaks down, of course, but uh, at some point. But uh, I think that's a helpful way of just imagining how this works. Is um, Christ has, in in some sense, defeated the power, the 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 hold that the demonic has on at least those who are in Christ. Um, you know, there's still debates on whether or not Christians can be demon possessed and all of that. But uh, I think these are really these are real actors, real real agents in the world. I'm not attracted to the idea of demythologizing the New Testament um, in such a way as to write off the personal and empowered nature of these beings as some sort of mythological um, or just you know just a relic from sort of ancient mythology. Um, I think that uh, as somebody who studies this, the New Testament as Christian scripture uh, and as uh, and at least with the particular tradition that I come from, uh, I, I see Paul saying that this is the worldview that um, we need to embrace if we're going to understand um, uh, really much of, of, of the Christian faith. And so, uh, yeah, so I think these are real agents, real powers even now. Um, I think that they, in some mysterious way, do control uh the uh, the actions of human beings, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, um, that all all unbelievers are you know are the sons of darkness, right? Are the ones in whom uh, the prince of the power of the air seems to have some sort of control. And then Ephesians six, very very famously, you know, would say that even for Christians, right, our 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 struggle our, um, is uh, isn't against the flesh, isn't against flesh and blood, but against you know the powers of darkness in this in this present world. So. Um, it seems like it's a, it's a real war. It's a real spiritual war that's going on, and um, the weapons of uh, that need to be utilized in order to resist and even to overcome these powers are the Word of God and the various virtues which we've been given in Christ in order to withstand the attacks of the devil. So, um, yeah. So I'm not sure I answered your question really well, other than to say that I think these are real powers that do, in fact, impact the world around us, daily sins as well as world 
you know, worldwide sort of catastrophes, all the, all of it is the fruit of some sort of, uh, uh, you know, the work of, you know, unseen evil powers within the world in which we live. Yeah. Well, I, I asked that question because like I said in the beginning, I, I do think that at least in my, um, through seminary, I had to take a class where we, there were, we talked only about pneumatology and there was like one small chapter about spirits in general. Um, and all the majority of the authors were not Western, actually. And it was very fascinating to me. And so the professor, um, Valley Medikarkainen, he said that evangelicals avoid this topic mostly. Um, so I'm just really, yeah, it's just fascinating that it's in, it's in the word, you know, it's in the word that uh, yeah. the demonic is involved in, in the material world. I think that's what you said, the, the physical plane. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any influence, like outside, like what influences, I guess, demonology? Is that the right word to use? Or what influences yeah. view of the demonic, do you think? So you're just asking what, uh, what influences various scholars and any, any particular approaches uh, to demonology? Or how? Oh, I'm sorry. What influenced Paul's view? Oh, Paul's... Like, where is he drawing from? Right. Oh, that's such a good question. And... Uh, so the I would say the scholarly consensus right now, and I think there's good reasons to believe this, is there was a major development between the Testaments. Hmm. Of course, the Old Testament seems to take for granted this unseen realm, um, the uh, the hosts of heaven. Um, you know, some people refer you know re- refer to the heavenly council. We also have a kind of uh, sat- Satan figure, the, the accuser. One that you know, some people debate whether or not it's a so like a soul figure. Of there's multiple, but uh, there certainly are unseen enemies of God, spiritual uh, enemies of God in the Old Testament. But um, as even there's some discussion in in the book to which I just I contributed here on demons and early Judaism and, early, and Christianity. Um, there's and, and many of others have written about this as well. There's just a a, a major. Uh, 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 how do I want to how do I want to call it? There's a, there's a there's a major interest in this in 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 the demonic and unseen realm that sort of picks up between the testaments. Could some people speculate it's the influence of other ancient Eastern cultures, uh, maybe the exile, uh, maybe the Greco-Roman world? Whatever the case is, um, there's a number of Second Temple Jewish texts that speculate as to the origin of these demons and it's it could be the case it's hard to know for sure but it could be it could be the case that the authors of the new testament paul included um just take for granted these kinds of origin stories okay and so first enoch um is the most famous uh first enoch uh, as as some of your listeners may or may not know is isn't really just one book it's a it's a it's a compilation of works um, but the first major work in the book of First Enoch, it's called the Book of the Watchers. And um, the first half of the Book of the Watchers provides a kind of uh, retelling, um, rewriting. Some people even call it the re- re- uh, rewritten scripture. That's sort of a genre of, of literature in the Second Temple period. But a rewritten scripture that sort of adds to uh, the narrative of Genesis chapter 6, which talks about the um, the sons of God, right, coming to the uh, uh, coming to the daughters of 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 men and, and and mating and the creation of what's called the Nephilim. So there are a variety of you know uh, of interpretations about you know, about who these 
sons of gods are and who the Nephilim are. But uh, between the Testaments, um, especially in sort of apocalyptic uh, accounts of, of how to interpret this passage in First Enoch and the Book of Jubilees and the Qumran Scrolls, uh, the unanimous interpretation is uh, that these sons of God are, are, are evil or rebellious spirits that come to the earth and mate with human women and produce sort of hybrid type children who are giants. And as God's angels come to the earth and then judge these, these giants who are in some ways wreak havoc upon, on, on humanity, um, their spirits are released into the world. And that is the origin of, uh, at least from a terrestrial perspective, the evil spirits that are on earth, the demonic demonic beings that are on earth. So it's it's really a consequence of um, the the judgment that's come upon these hybrid children of 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 uh, of spirit spirit beings, um, the watchers who who again mate with um, with human women. That's that's again a very speculative uh, interpretation uh, of of one uh, one passage of the Old Testament that doesn't have much to. <laughs> To say it for itself, really, there's not much clarification that we can uh, get from the text itself. But uh, but that's that's the predominant view in early Judaism from the origin of these spirits, and it could be the case that Paul Paul himself sort of assumes as much as well. So, do you think that should? So, let's say a listener right now is like, "Oh my gosh, that's crazy that Paul was influenced by something that's not in the Bible." What do we say to that person? What do we say to the average? believer who just, you know, is figuring this out for the first yeah. time. I remember when I, I learned that, you know, first Enoch influenced some of the theology of the New Testament. And it, yeah, it, it was, I guess, like, you know, I had some cognitive dissonance for a second, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I'd be curious how you answer that. Or yeah. Would, I mean, what would you say to the person that wrestles with that? That's a good, yeah, that's a good question. A good, just a good question to, for any, any teacher who's teaching people who are you know, take take these texts as especially scripture. You know, um, I I would say that uh, we shouldn't be surprised that the authors of the New Testament are in some way influenced by or sort of swimming in the sea of the of Second Temple Judaism and some of the just the the predominant interpretations of the Old Testament that were circulating during this period. Um, uh, this is actually just one of my favorite my favorite scholarly activities is to read a lot of these ancient texts and sort of just to see the ways in which they resonate with mm. thought world of the New Testament authors. I just think there are just innumerable um, examples of uh, Jesus and his followers in the Gospels, as well as Paul and other authors of the New, of the New Testament who just just are 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 partic- full of participants within Judaism, ancient Judaism, and all the various development um, that's taken place from the Old Testament into this, um, the, the, early, the early Jewish period. So um, I would say it, it shouldn't surprise us, right? There's a, there's a uh, you know, all Christians themselves, right, are the product of uh, certain traditions and developments um, within Christian doctrine that, uh, you know, of, of the, you know, that that come from scripture, but at the same time, um, aren't necessarily always explicit in scripture. And so traditions affect us and they affected the authors of the new Testament. And I would just say in his, in his, as his providence, God has utilized 
right? These traditions and these, these developments, um, to, Mm. um, to help shape the thoughts of the authors that he, you, that he inspired to write text. And so, uh, I don't think it's a problem. All sorts of different apologetic questions, right? Of Of course, come up and pastoral concerns, but, um, I think it would be a mistake for us to assume that the New Testament was written in a vacuum, right? Without any sort of influence from the outside world. It doesn't mean what we have is, a, is in a sense, a corrupted uh, scripture in the sense that, right, it can't be trusted. I mean, right. uh, I wouldn't use that, that, that term in that way. Um, what I would say is that in the same way that God thought it fit to send his son into the world, right, mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, our scriptures in many ways reflect uh, the assumptions and the worldview of the people who inhabit that world. Um, and so, uh, yeah, to me, not a problem. But at the same time, whether or not I'm forced to believe that that's exactly where demons come from, I'm sort of agnostic at the, just, uh, you know, my own particular uh, uh, opinion about it. Uh, I don't consider First Enoch to be scripture. I think it's a very helpful testament to how ancient Jews interpreted a variety of Old Testament texts and speculated about the origin of of the powers of evil, but um, it may or may not be right. I don't know. Sure, sure. Well, that's helpful. The distinction between, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter where they came from. They're here. They're here. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a helpful distinction. A helpful, I guess, nuanced answer to the influence of outside sources. So. Uh, we can end here, but I'd love to ask one more question just about, and the question would be, you know, are there any misconceptions or misunderstandings uh, of demons that you would like to address or you, that you would like to say, hey, don't believe this or do believe this? Um, but if you don't want to answer that, we can end right here as well. So it's a- <laughs> That's a good question. And I've, I'm not prepared to answer very well, um, I guess, because I don't. I'm a, you know, I live in the Western world and we oftentimes just don't talk about the demonic, right? And so I'm not even sure what most people in my church or in my, my, uh, my religious community are even saying about demons because we just don't talk about them. So maybe that's the problem. Maybe the problem is there's not enough discussion. And so, uh, don't believe it when you hear that they're not real. Don't believe it when you are told that they're irrelevant. Mm. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think, when 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 people start talking about the demonic, it's sort of at least in my tradition anyway. It makes people nervous, yeah, uh, because there are certainly ex- excesses, right? I and to, to to my mind anyway, there are probably um, excessive ways we can we can be too infatuated and too enamored by, or perhaps too worried about the demonic. Um, yeah, I don't think that's what uh, the New Testament would 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 cause us to uh, the kind of posture. Or attitude we should have is, is just to be is to be worried or anxious about them, but rather um, have confidence that we've been given the spiritual resources to uh, to defend ourselves and to walk faithfully with Jesus, regardless of their influence in the wider world. So yeah, so maybe maybe the the word of caution is to don't say nothing, but also don't be too enamored yeah. as if they are a a uh, as if they're a power that we have not been given the, the ability to withstand. Amen. Yeah. Well, Dr. Goodrich, thank you so much for your time and and your scholarship and just your heart. I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.